Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, and today we're going to look at the oppression during the building. Our main text is going to be the entirety of Nehemiah chapter 5, so verses 1 through 19. And just for context, if you missed uh, either of the past two studies as we made our way through chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 ended with, with the people ready for battle. I mean, they weren't even willing to take their clothes off. They didn't want to get comfortable in a way where they wouldn't be ready to defend. They wouldn't be ready to act if the enemy came in. But at the same time, not stopping the work. Ready to defend, but still working. They, they were ready to rally together if they heard the trumpet blast from the wall. People were on guard by night. There was working parties that were continuing by day. The enemy's plan had been thwarted by the Lord. The people of God were encouraged to remember their Lord, great and awesome. They were encouraged to fight. They were encouraged that, that God would fight for them, their God. And, and generally things being sort of left off at the end of chapter 4 with, with a, a sense of hopefulness and unity. And, you know, we've never read through the book of Nehemiah before. Coming to chapter 5, it might be a little surprising that this is now the situation that we're going to find. But the problem Nehemiah and the people are going to face now in chapter 5 is the walls were halfway built, maybe, you know, four, uh, you know, four weeks in or so, as the people continued to build and defend, was not opposition from the outside, from their enemies, but oppression taking place on the inside from their fellow Jews. And so with that context in mind, let's read verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5 verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those, verse 4, who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. There were at least three different situations going on here that three different groups were crying out about, and, and this great outcry... That, spoke of a, a remarkable, great in magnitude cry of distress, a wailing, a, a cry, a call for help, which really makes it clear that something was really wrong. In verse 2, we see that there were some, a, a group of people who were just in need of grain so that they could eat and live. These were likely the poorest people of the land who didn't own land or vineyards, or houses, and so they didn't have or, or own anything of value to trade in exchange for food so that they could keep on living. In verse 3, we see that there were others, another group of people who owned land, but had to mortgage what they owned. And that word mortgage there, speaking of engaging in trade, having to trade land and vineyards and houses in exchange for money, in order to buy the grain that they were in need of because of the famine. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see that there were some, a, a final group of people, who had to borrow money, take out loans with those who were wealthier there in, in Jerusalem, to pay the king's tax on their lands and vineyards. Even some among that group who ended up having to give their children into slavery, into servitude, to their fellow Jews to help pay the debts they owed, and they were unable, powerless to redeem their children from slavery. 
these people were forced with the decision to either starve to death or sell their children into slavery. Things were bad. Can you imagine dealing with all this as you've been called to this immense work of being at the wall and just working night and day? How divided your attention might be. You're trying to clear away the rubble. You're, you're trying to build something new. Families are being stationed. At the same time, some are just wondering if their kids are okay. Because they're in somebody else's house as slaves now. People at the wall who are just going like, I'm, I literally have like maybe two days worth of grain left and then I'm going to die. My family's going to starve. Knowing that there's this other group who are just profiting off of them. They're doing great. But they're suffering. And all of this is an internal issue. Again, this is no longer a, the enemy is going to attack from, the, from, from all around us. And, and knowing clearly who the enemy is, but man, like it's no longer an enemy on the outside. It's like, I feel like I've got enemies here. They feel like, man, I'm not being cared for. These people sh- should be doing the right thing. They're actually violating Mosaic law and the things that they're doing. But who's going to help us? And so they cry out. And and you can imagine this moment. Everything before, the work never stopped. There was never a moment where the work halted. Each time, Nehemiah's like, "Let's, let's keep working, guys. Remember the Lord. Let's get to the lower sections of the walls. Not at all before this had the work halted. That's how it was able to get halfway there so quickly. But now seemingly the work is halting because of conflict from within. And, you know, I think for us as the body of Christ, we have to be mindful that our biggest threat is not even the attack of Satan himself. It's you and me. It's how we treat each other. It's how we're taking care of one another in the body of Christ. The work of God. I mean, Jesus already said in Matthew 16, he made a promise, a declaration. I will build my church. We know this. I will build my church. But what did he say? And the gates of Haiti shall not prevail against it. So, I mean, I still pray. Lord, don't let the gate, don't let the gates of Hades be like I, I, Lord, I want to, I want to kind of hold you to your word there, but that's a promise. The gates of Hades will not, Hades will not prevail against us. But you know what can prevail against the the church? Oftentimes, is the people within the church, and just a, a sobering sort of reminder, even for us today, as we see how dysfunctional the body of Christ can be. How many of you have been a, a part of a dysfunctional church before? Don't raise your hand. You're like, it's this one. You're right, because you're here and so am I. We bring the dysfunction with us because we're sinners. But to know that God's called us to, to actually be, be, a, be an organism within the world that He's created that brings this fragrance of life, that, that brings the, the fragrance of Christ, that, that actually doesn't dishonor the name of Jesus, that doesn't cause people to want to run away from Jesus because we're, we're terrible witnesses, but that actually, through us, the world would go, I want what they have. And how we treat each other in the body of Christ, how we treat other people outside even the body of Christ, God cares about hugely. And I, I think this chapter really paints that picture for us to help us kind of better understand some of the context of what was going on here. Because if you don't know, it, and it, if you've been reading along in our Bible plan, you're like, I know this already. We just read this in Leviticus chapter 26 because there was these laws against, you know, the, the Jews charging interest to their, to their fellow Jews and like what would happen if someone needed to be brought in as a servant, like, well... Warren Wearsby kind of helps us, you know, 
know the context a little bit better here. He said this in his commentary on uh, these verses. He said, It was not unlawful for Jews to loan money to one another, but they were not to act like money lenders and charge interest, Deuteronomy 23. They were to treat one another with love even in the matter of taking security or making a brother a servant. Both the people and the land belong to the Lord, and he would not have anybody using either one for personal gain. One reason for the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, was to balance the economic system in Israel so that the rich could not get richer as the poor became poorer. All debts had to be forgiven in the 50th year, all land restored to its original owners, and all servants set free. These wealthy businessmen were selfishly exploiting the poor in order to make themselves rich. They were using their power to rob some and to put others into bondage. Greed, he said, was one of the sins the prophets had denounced before the Babylonian captivity. He lists several uh, passages there from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos. God, he says, has a special concern for the poor and will not hold those guiltless who take advantage of them. These were desperate sorts of situations for these Jewish people who were trying to do the work of rebuilding the walls and the gates, but at the same time were being oppressed by some of their fellow Jews, taken advantage of by those who were more well-off financially than them, feeling like they would never get their children or land back while others prospered and didn't seem to care or weren't willing to help them. And clearly from Nehemiah's response in the following verses here, these were not situations Nehemiah knew about until this great outcry happened. And so let's continue on. Look at verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother, So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I want us to see right away in verse 6 that Nehemiah's anger was a righteous anger. It was a righteous anger. An anger because of injustice that was happening. An anger because those who should have been loving and taking care of their, their neighbor, their fellow Jew, were taking advantage of their neighbor. And all of this was just furthering the disgrace that the people had brought upon themselves in the eyes of the nations around them, nations that were their enemies, and all of it really being a disgrace, bringing shame to their God. See, those among the people who could have been a blessing ended up burdening and oppressing the people who were already overburdened by everything else that had been going on. Now, Nehemiah here does not fly off the handle in a rage, When he heard this, no, in verse 7, we see that in his anger, he waited and he gave serious thought to everything before he responded and rebuked those who were oppressing their countrymen. (laughs) You know, I I don't, again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. How many of you have ever, in your anger, spoke before you gave serious thought to the thing? You know the Bible says a fool gives vent to his anger? How many times have we been foolish because we've just vented our anger? I love James chapter 1. James says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, when we act in our anger and we think that it's a righteous anger, maybe even in the moment, maybe it started as a righteous, righteous anger. But even things that start as a righteous anger a lot of times don't stay very righteous. What gets mixed in is us. And anytime that happens, man, you know what gets produced? Not the righteousness of God, not the right things. 
Just more problems. <laughs> New problems. Nehemiah is such a great example here. He, he, he's angry, and he should be angry. This was, this was something to be angry about. But he gave it serious thought before he responded. You know, something clearly had to be done about this situation. It couldn't be swept under the rug, or it would truly cause the work of the Lord to, to be ruined, to stay in a state of disgrace. The walls just kind of, they'd always just be sort of halfway there. Nehemiah was the right person to deal with it because he had already had a, a burden for the people, a love, a compassion for the people in Jerusalem and the Jews who lived in the neighboring areas around Jerusalem. And as the governor of the land of Judah, he also had the authority to call the people out and help make things right. So Nehemiah began to rebuke those who were doing the oppressing, the nobles. And these were those who belonged to the ruling class of the Jews. That the rulers speaks of those who were held or were invested with an office among the people. And in his rebuke in verses 7 through 11, we see that the problem was not that the nobles and rulers were giving loans to their fellow Jews in need. No, the, the problem was that they were charging interest. They were making a profit off of those who were in need, their own brethren, and demanding payment from those who were unable to pay, and if they couldn't pay it, were making them give their children into slavery to help start paying off the debt that was owned. And these things were strictly forbidden in Mosaic law. So first he began to rebuke them, but then Nehemiah called a great assembly, he brought the whole community together to address the situations that were going on. And as Nehemiah addressed assembly, the assembly, he wanted the nobles and the rulers to see the reality of what they were really doing. The, the Jewish people's rebellion in the past had led, them, uh, led to them being conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile, losing their freedom, being ripped away from their homelands and everything that they knew and loved. But God had brought them back had given them their land and their freedom back. But instead of all the, the people experiencing the freedom that the Lord had provided them and being back in their land, even though they were still under the rule of the Persian Empire, they were being brought under bondage again by the actions of the nobles and rulers who were mistreating them. And, and Nehemiah's initial rebuke left them silenced and speechless. But let's pick it up again in verse 9 and read through verse 11. Verse 9, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Before letting the people know that he and his brothers and his servants were leading by example in lending to the people, helping to take care of their needs without charging interest, and before charging the people to restore what they had taken wrongly, Nehemiah puts the emphasis on what was really at the heart of this. See, the nobles and the rulers were showing through their actions that they did not fear the Lord. They didn't fear the Lord. They didn't care about the, what the Lord had already said in His Word. They didn't care about honoring Him. They didn't care about submitting to His authority. They didn't care about the reproach, the disgrace this was bringing upon them, and more importantly, upon the Lord. And Nehemiah says, the things you're doing are not good. I feel like that's a very gracious response by Nehemiah. I think he could have laid it on much thicker. If we were in his shoes, we might have. We might have just lost it. But he's just like, You're, this isn't good. He, his, 
his gracious sort of rebuke even. I believe in this moment was like melting walls that potentially could have gotten put up in pride as the rebuke was going forth. Have you ever noticed that maybe in your own heart as someone comes to you and they're and maybe they're sharing a hard word with you, they're calling you out on something. But maybe the softness of their heart that shines through in their rebuke, it, it sort of like helps you to let your guard down. Instead of rising up in pride and, and just hardening yourself to where you're like, no way, even though I know you're right, I'm not, I'm not going to listen and I'm not going to respond in humility like, no. But to be able to go, you're right. What I've been doing is not good. I haven't been fearing the Lord. I want to make it right. And man, even just a word for us to learn from Nehemiah's example here and how we come to people with a hard word. If there's a rebuke, a correction that's needed, that God would give us a love that would shine forth even in hard things that are having to be said, that would help others to let their guard down and receive the thing that's being shared. And so that change actually happens. I think we've lost a lot of that. We're, we're in such a politically charged time of our, our country, and everybody, I mean, they just say whatever. People say whatever on both sides of the aisle, politically. They say whatever, with whatever attitude, and, just, and, and it almost seems like, well, that just seems like the right thing to do. We just say it, and we could be abrasive and offensive even, but we're speaking the truth. And it's like, please don't learn from their example. Learn from Nehemiah's example. Learn from Jesus' example. And Even when Jesus said hard things, he was still trying to get to the heart of the person. Sometimes we say things because we just want to jab somebody in the heart. We're not looking for change to really happen. We just really want to stick it to somebody. We got we to gotta get out of that thing. That is not where you and I are supposed to be as disciples of Jesus. The things they were doing were not good, clearly. And if they had truly feared and loved and wanted to honor God, they would have done good to their neighbor, their fellow Jew who was in need. And their actions were not just harming their fellow Jews, it was harming the witness of the Jewish people. Because there was nothing different about what they were doing here that set them apart from what the godless people around them were doing already. This is what the unbelievers did. They took advantage of other people. And they were supposed to be different. And for us, what, what attracts outsiders, unbelievers, to the Lord through our life? If there's nothing differentiating us between anybody else because we just do and we look like and we sound like what everybody else does and says and sounds like and, and feels like, that, that feel of people, then you know what we've lost, guys, as the as as disciples of Jesus as the body of Christ as we've lost our saltiness. Our salt, the saltiness of our witness has just been trampled underfoot by men. Nobody wants to pick up the salt shaker of our life and use it. You know why? Because it doesn't, doesn't this, this thing of our life doesn't actually make any difference. What we claim that Jesus has done in us, there's, it's not showing forth in, our, in anything of our lives, if that's us. I just love some of these things that, that Nehemiah is sort of pointing, pointing out here and hard things that can be hard for us to hear and receive and hard definitely for these people to hear and receive, but needed. Let's look at the response of the, the people and the interaction there in verses 12 and 13. So they said, verse 12, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests 
and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. This could have turned out much differently. Again, this could have been a moment for pride to creep in, the the, the nobles and rulers just sort of hardening their hearts to this rebuke, not being willing to humble themselves and repent. But praise God, Nehemiah had the courage to say some hard things. And praise God, these people had the humility to receive those hard things that were said and make the necessary changes. That the nobles and rulers made a promise that they would do as Nehemiah said, but we see in verse 13 that Nehemiah was going to hold them to their promise and hold them accountable so that they would follow through with their promise. And we see this in Nehemiah calling the priests and requiring an oath from them that they would do according to this promise so that the promise wouldn't just be between those who, who lent the money, who charged interest, and with those who borrowed the money, but that the promise was between those who lent the money and the Lord. And this oath was going to carry a curse if they didn't make good on it, that God would shake out these people. Nehemiah using this physical illustration of his garment. Like, man, it's, you're going to be shaken out and you're just going to like be thrown to the ground. Isn't, this is like in the moment that what Nehemiah could sort of go like, how can I... How can I really illustrate what, what God's going to do to you people who, who don't fall through with this? You know, it can be easy for us to make promises of change, but then maybe not follow through with the things we promised and had a good intention to follow through with. And so often what is needed is good, healthy, godly accountability, Accountability that will help us connect our good intentions with godly actions. You know why a lot of us don't really like accountability? I mean, in the truest sense. We don't want people telling us that what we're doing is not good. What you're doing is wrong. How you acted was wrong. How you treated that person was wrong. That accountability, where like we might have a good intention of something, but like when it's just, when there's nothing there and we don't allow anybody to sort of speak into our life hard things, you know, oftentimes when we're in that place, things usually stay in a really unhealthy place for us. There's greater health that God wants to bring into your and my life, that God actually wants to use this this area of of godly accountability for you and me. But I love how the assembly responded to all of this in verse 13. All the assembly said, amen. Let it be so. So be it. What were they saying? They're saying, do it, Lord. Make it happen. They were ready for this to end. They wanted the oppression to stop. They're like, amen. Do it. (laughs) And after saying amen, the people praised the Lord. I want us to notice something here. Do you see this too? They praised the Lord before anything changed. The rest of the verse says, then, then the people did according to this promise. So before the people did according to the promise, the assembly praised the Lord. They worshiped the Lord. And it's a powerful thing in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, both powerful between us and the Lord and also in our witness to those who are watching us when we praise the Lord before things have even changed outwardly 
in our circumstances. God wants to use our worship as a witness. Do we think about that? That God wants to use our worship as a witness? Not just worship that takes place from the mountaintop, but also worship that takes place down deep in the valley. When everything is going great, but also when everything going around, uh, on around us and happening to us is not great from a physical and temporal perspective, our worship can be a witness. But our worship in those moments when things haven't yet come to pass, when things may still be really difficult, also helps realign our heart and realign our perspective to see how good and great and powerful and loving and gracious and capable our God is. To be reminded of His nearness and His compassion for us. And in that posture of worship, begin to see that our problems or difficulties are not bigger than our God is. They praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. They made good on the changes they said that they would make. They removed the extra burdens that they had placed on the people, burdens that were, were dividing the people and causing strife and distress. And because of this was causing the work of the Lord and their witness for the Lord to be affected, to be hindered, to become damaged. But let's look at our final verses here, verses 14 through 19. Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people." I want us to see a shift here in these final verses of this chapter. The, the things in these verses are not a speech that Nehemiah gave to the people. This isn't insight into a conversation he was even having with someone else. No, this is just a journal entry that Nehemiah is making. And by what he says in verse 19, these things seem to be something he's just sort of bringing before the Lord. So this isn't Nehemiah bragging. This isn't self-exaltation on Nehemiah's part so that others think he's great. No, these things he's writing down in verses 14 through 19 are just a moment of honesty between him and the Lord, wanting God to know that he did the things that he did here because of his fear of and his love for the Lord. See, the governors before Nehemiah took advantage of their rights to special provision, but they did it at the detriment of their people. This put extra burdens on the people while they lived without burden, but Nehemiah was not going to do things the way all those before him had done things. And the reason for this is because he wanted to honor and please the Lord. He feared his God. And because he feared his God, he lived differently 
than other people, even though it was something he could have chosen to do. He could have said, well, I'm the governor. I'm going to take the governor's provisions. And if other people are a little burdened by it, like, stinks for them. Life's not all flowers and sausages. Could have said that. But he did things differently because he feared his God. And I just have to ask us, what about us? Does our fear of God, our worship, our reverence, our respect, our love for our God shape what we will and won't do, how we view and treat others, because it should. Nehemiah didn't conform to the practices and perspectives of others, but instead, he wanted to live a holy life unto his holy God. And I pray more and more, we desire that too. Our world does not value holiness Even many within the Western church nowadays do not value holiness. But Peter, writing by the inspiration of the Spirit in this new age of grace, said that we are to be holy, for He is holy. He didn't say, guys, because of this whole grace thing, things are different. Just kind of do the best you can. Holiness, I mean, God's holy, that's enough. He's going, no, we're still to be holy. Nothing's changed. Our holy God is still looking at us and going, be holy. Be set apart, be different. Because a holy people help reflect a holy God to an unholy world who are on the road leading to destruction, and you and I are those people who are supposed to be different, who, are, who our lives are showing forth how amazing our God truly is. And guess what? He has power for us to live differently. We don't have to live like we used to live before Christ got a hold of our lives. We can do things differently. New things can happen. Why? Because we are made new creations in Christ Jesus. And if those old things that he said have passed away and all things have become new, if those old things are still trailing after us, we shouldn't just go, well, they're just, that's just how it is. We should say, Lord... I don't want these old things anymore. You've made me new. And so God, destroy those old things or do away with those old things, Lord, so I can walk in that newness of life you've called me to. I I want us to notice though here as we kind of come to the end of our verses here. Verse 17, who was at Nehemiah's table? This might be a weird thing to point out, but I have a point here. Among the uh, 150 Jews, that's a lot of people, first of all, to be providing food for. Among those people, notice, were some rulers. The reason I point this out is because the rulers were those who were rebuked by Nehemiah. These people who were sitting at Nehemiah's table, who were receiving of Nehemiah's generosity and care and provision were some of the same people who were lacking in generosity and care and provision for their brethren who they were lending money to and making interest off of and taking their children as slaves. And this just made me think of how we can sometimes do a similar sort of thing. We get to sit at the Lord's table, so to speak, as those who have been made children of God through faith in Jesus. We get to receive of his blessings and care and provision and grace, but we can easily receive those things and then choose to withhold the grace and blessings and care that the Lord is wanting us to give out to others. Sometimes the grace we've so freely and generously been given can be hard to freely and generously give to other people. And if that's us, it's important we humble ourselves before the Lord. We 
confess those things to him. We repent of those things. And then in a posture of surrender, ask the Lord to do a powerful work of transformation in us that would change how we interact with and treat and see and serve and, and love other people. We, we need the Lord to confront us and tell us how things really are. Just like Nehemiah did with the nobles and the rulers because without him lovingly and graciously but firmly calling us out on stuff that's not right, things will never change. He'll continue to be dishonored. Our witness will continue to lie in ruins and we'll miss out on all the things that the Lord would want to do in and through our lives. Nehemiah is an amazing example. He was an amazing example for the people and how he cared for others, not wanting to add any burdens, but instead help remove burdens. And at the end of the day, he didn't do it to be remembered fondly by the people. He did it because he feared and loved his God and just wanted his God to remember him for good. You know, there are people all around us. Now the worship team come back up. Even other disciples of Jesus who are feeling burdened, weighed down. How easy it is it to just feel burdened in a moment. It could just come so quickly. You hear something, something happens. Your need of rest for your soul. God forbid we would add extra burdens onto people of things that are just our own thing and not the Lord. When Jesus is wanting them to come to him, wanting us to come to him, so they and, and we can find rest for our souls. Instead of adding burdens, things that aren't from the Lord, we can be used of God today, in these days, to be burden lifters as we help bring others to Jesus Christ. And look, our witness truly is at stake. Because whether we realize it or not, people are watching us. They're watching us. Jesus said, look, all will know that you're disciples if you could just really preach a good message. Nope, didn't say that. All will know that we're disciples of Jesus if, it's conditional, they'll know it if we have love for one another. At the heart of all this, people were not loving with the love of God. They didn't fear God because they didn't fear God. They just did whatever felt right. And, and people got hurt. People were oppressed. People were taken advantage of. Burdens were lumped on top of people, and people were just feeling weighed down. And because they were weighed down, it was affecting them being able to do the work of the Lord. And so for us, what do we take away? How are you and I going to be able to do the work of the Lord effectively? How, how is our witness for the Lord going to be as, as bright and shining as it should be? If we are not loving one another, taking care of one another, ministering to one another in the body of Christ the way that God has called us to. You know, maybe even this morning we can identify ways where, you know what, some things that I've done or said, I, I think I may be someone who's burdened. I've added burden onto someone else's life. And that was me. That wasn't the Lord. That was just my thing. I put a trip on somebody else. I did that. And would we be able to go, Lord, I want to change to happen <laughs> and help me to connect my good intentions with godly actions. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your work in our lives 
And God, this morning, you see, Lord, all of us. Lord, you know what's going on, Lord, in the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds. And God, those who came in here feeling burdened, feeling weighed down, Lord, and maybe that, maybe that burden is because of physical issues, Lord. Maybe it's illness, Lord. Maybe it's some sort of physical weakness, Lord, that they might be dealing with. And today they're feeling burdened. Lord, maybe that, that burden, that weighed-downness is because of relational issues. There's something going on in their lives between somebody else, and it's just, it's weighing upon some this morning. God, maybe it's financial, like it was for the people. And God, there's people maybe today who are just, God, there's a weight that they're carrying because of some sort of financial thing that's unresolved. Something that's looming over their heads that just seems to be swallowing up any hope. God, maybe that, that burden is just a, a, is an emotional or mental thing. It's just something in their minds that they're struggling with and it's just there. And it just seems so huge and heavy and affecting everything else in their thought life. God, maybe it's, maybe it's spiritual, Lord. Maybe, God, there's a struggle with sin that, that's just not been overcome. And so there's this weight that the enemy is just compounding on with condemnation. God, whatever that burden, whatever that weight may be that any of us may be carrying, Lord, I've, I've said it the last couple weeks, but Jesus, your invitation in Matthew 11 still rings just as true for us today. That Jesus, this morning, you're calling out to all those who are weary and heavy laden, who are burdened. No matter what that burden looks like, God, physical, relational, financial, emotional, spiritual, what, whatever that might be, to come to you, to learn from you, to take your yoke upon themselves. Lord, knowing that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, God. And when they do that, when they come to you in that sort of way, when they come to your throne of grace where you have mercy and grace to help them in time of need, Lord, that they'll find at the same time, Lord, that you have rest for their souls, a release of burdens. And God, in those ways that maybe we've been, we've actually caused a burden on somebody else, Lord, would we confess those things to you, Lord? Would we repent of those things, God? Would we make those things right? Maybe it's a relational sort of thing, God, that we'd make things right. Those things that we've done that aren't good, Lord, that we would do good. Because we fear you, Lord. We love you. We want to honor you. And we want to love your people. And God, maybe there's other ways where you're just wanting to use us to help unload burdens from people, Lord. God, everywhere around us, there's people that are just weighed down. They're weighed down by sin. They're weighed down by just all the chaos in the world, Lord. They're, they're weighed down by the oppression of the enemy. And God, you and I have the solution. God, you've given us the solution. It's Jesus and so, Lord, help us to not be burden, uh, burden adders, Lord, but to be burden lifters. And so, God, minister to hearts even this morning here in this place, Lord. And God, if there's anybody here who doesn't just have a personal saving relationship with you, God, would you even now be softening them, Lord, convicting them, Lord, bringing them to that place of of humility, of surrender, God, where they'll put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And if that's anybody this morning and you've been just weighed down by the, the weight of sin that separated you from God, that, that thing, Jesus has made a way for that to be removed. He did it by going to the cross for you and for me. He paid our debt. These people owed a debt 
and they feel burdened and they, they needed their children to be redeemed, but you and I have already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That, that, that's already, that, that, that price has already been paid for us at the cross. You and I just have to receive what Jesus has provided. And if that's anybody in here and you need to accept Jesus into your life and, and have him receive, uh, receive him as your Savior and have your sins forgiven, your debt paid, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning if that's anybody here? Maybe someone even later on or even online would be watching this and just going, that's me. And Lord, I just pray that even between them and you, Lord, they would just get real with you. Lord, they'd humble themselves before you. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Jesus, cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Lord, just Jesus, redeem me from the power of sin and Satan. Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord. My God, my King. Jesus, I put my trust in you today. I repent of my sin. And Jesus, I want to live for you. Help me to do that by the power of your Spirit. Lord, fill me even now with your Spirit. Seal me, Lord God, with your Spirit for the day of redemption. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. And would you give me new life today? Just encourage you, if you've done that, that Jesus has saved you, he's redeemed you, has sealed you, he's forgiven you. And Lord, as we respond to these songs of praise, God, would we just, Lord, see you, Lord, even lift those burdens. God, we would be those who praise you, Lord, even before anything's changed outwardly in our lives or inwardly in our lives. God, will we be those witnesses for you, Lord, to a watching world. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.